We're going to start out in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 5 today. Now, uh, forgive me if I'm chasing after pop culture uh, when I, I use a title like this. I don't use a lot of movie clips, but considering where we are, what we looked at last week, and what we looked at, what we're looking at today, I couldn't avoid the tie to Raiders of the Lost Ark. How many of you, just out of curiosity, how many of you at some point along the way have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Pretty much, wow, just about everybody. Do you know how old that movie is? Old, yeah, it's been around a long time. Well, it, it was really a good movie, the opening of the Indiana Jones series. But it's interesting to note that the main storyline of that first piece, how much it actually borrowed from the scriptures, from the passage that we looked at last week and a piece of what we're going to look at this week. Uh, if, if you hadn't seen that movie in a long time, you just remember that the, the main storyline in Raiders of the Lost Ark was that now, granted, they were, they were reaching back 3,000 years. They were updating it from the war between Israel and the Philistines. They were pulling it forward to World War II. And in the movie line, uh, storyline there, Hitler had a similar interest to what the Jews and the Philistines did 3,000 years earlier, believing that because the power of God went with the Ark of the Covenant, that if he wanted to win World War II, then he needed to send out people who would search and find the Ark, and so God would be on the side of the Axis powers, and so the Nazis would win World War II. So the whole movie is about kind of a race between the Allies and the Axis powers. Who's going to find the Ark of the Covenant, and whose side is God going to be on in this war? And so... As things unfold, they sort of arrive at the same time. They discover the ark together. And we're going to pause to watch just a little clip from the movie that, as much as it may seem far-fetched, I want you to watch and see how much this little clip really does reflect what happens in a part of what we're going to read today as they have recovered the ark of the covenant and they realize, oh my goodness, we have access to something really unique here, but now they're afraid to take it back to Germany and just pop the lid on this thing in front of the Fuhrer. And so they figure we better go to a remote island. But when we open this, in case something really wild happens, as you see, does. And so the little clip we're going to look at now is where Indy and his romantic counterpart are tied up and are hostages as the Nazis are looking inside the Ark. One thing that you'll get in this little clip is a good look at a very good replica of the Ark of the covenant, the golden box that contained the jar with the manna and Moses' staff and the tablets with the Ten Commandments. And so take a quick look at the screen at uh, the original Raiders of the Lost Ark.
Well, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg may have taken a little bit of uh, theatrical liberty with that, but as we're about to see, maybe not as much as you would imagine. The Ark of the Covenant was more than just a symbol. In the Old Testament, this is the thing that God used more than anything else to teach his people about his presence, his power, his holiness, and how we had better be careful in the ways that we approach him as his people. We're going to begin reading in 1 Samuel chapter 5, and we're going to cover a good bit of ground. We're going to read part of this, and I'll just tell you uh, part of the story. If you weren't here last week, I'll just remind you that what has happened right up to this point in time is Israel, over 350 years, has just descended further and further down morally, as every person just does what's right in their own eyes, very similar to how we're living today in America. And they have descended to the place that they're far from God, and they have gone into battle against the Philistines. They've been defeated. 4,000 of them were killed, and then they said, oh my goodness, what's wrong? How can God's people lose in battle? And they said, oh, we know what's wrong. We didn't have the Ark of the Covenant with us. We didn't have our God in a box with us. So they ran back and they got the Ark. They brought it with them and they're just they shouting and they're sure they're going to win a victory because now they've got their God in a box and they go into battle and they are severely defeated. 30,000 Israelites are killed and worse than that, the Ark of the Covenant is now taken by the Philistines and it is in the hands of the Philistines. And that's where we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 5. We read, we read there that after the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod and then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. That is the, the highest God in their pantheon of gods. So they set the Ark of the Covenant representing the Hebrew God. They're going to make a space for him in their pantheon. We're going to put him right next to our favorite God, Dagon, and watch. I mean, it's almost like God's having a little fun with these people in the next couple of verses. It's almost funny what he does. When, verse 3, when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the, of the Lord. You see what God's done. He's taken this chief of the pagan gods and got him on his face before the ark in a symbol of worship before the one true God. Well, isn't that a strange coinkydink when you get up in the morning and your God is laying on its face before somebody else's God? And so they did what you would expect. They took Dagon and they put him back up in its place. But the following morning, when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. But his head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold, and only his body remained. God knows how to make a point, doesn't he? Now, not only is he in a position of worship, but he's broken off the head and the hands. It is a picture of absolute submission and brokenness and powerlessness before the one true God. The Ark of the Covenant representing the presence of the one true God. Well, that's a little worrisome. We'll pick up in verse 6. The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity, and he brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. When the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy against us and upon Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and they asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath? So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. So there are five major Philistine cities and they begin this little thing of hopping it from one city to the other until the hand of God is too heavy on that city and the people go, we can't take this, send it somewhere else. And so they continue to do that. 
After they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. And he afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the ark of God back to Ekron. Now, we're not certain, but... Uh, the majority of scholars believe that bubonic plague or something similar to that is what God sent among the people. The word for tumors can also just mean big open boils or sores. And as you'll see later in, in the passage, rats were a major part of this judgment from God. So something like the plague God is causing to break out in every city where the Ark of the Covenant goes. The ark was entering Ekron, and the people there cried out, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel around us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers and said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic, and God's hand was very heavy upon it. And so they came up with a plan. We're going to have to send this thing back to where it came from, or we're all going to be annihilated by the presence of God in the Philistine camp. And so they came came up with a plan. We're going to put the ark on a new cart. Now, this is going to be a test to see whether this is a coincidence that all of this death and, and destruction has come with the ark. Was it a coincidence or was it the hand of God? And so they came up with a pretty creative test. We'll put the ark on a cart. And just in case this is from God and the ark goes back to the people of God, we want to make sure that God is appeased. So they said, let's put a little new box on there. And in that, let's put five... Uh, gold tumors and five gold rats because the judgments of God have come in the form of tumors and rats that have infested the people with these diseases and they want to appease him with a peace offering and so they said all right put this on the cart and then we're going to hook two cows not oxen that have ever pulled a cart but cows that specifically have never pulled a cart we're going to hook them to the front of the cart and we're going to make sure that these are cows that have just born calves and we're going to pin up I mean this is all spelled out in in this chapter we're going to pin up the calves and we're going to just stand back and we're going to see what happens now if you didn't grow up on a farm or spending any time around a farm you may not appreciate what this means all the farm folks in the room know exactly what this is they're creating a scenario where there is no natural way that those cows should do anything other than stand there and go if you've ever seen a mama cow separated from her calf it is a dreadfully sounding thing it's just it's, it's noisy and they want one thing only to get back to the calf and they're saying if this is truly about God and he wants the ark returned to Israel these cows which have no idea how to pull a cart and would never naturally work together to pull a cart and if they did they would only pull it to the pen where their babies are if this is God then somehow these cows will find a way to go all the way back to Israel they set up this scenario stood back and you know exactly what happens next they took off on a beeline back for Israel in spite of hearing their babies and it says they are just bellering all the way don't want to leave their babies but even cows go on a mission for God taking the Ark of the Covenant back to God's people and so that's exactly what they do through chapter 6 and then you get down to uh, verse 13 where these two bellering cows come into town pulling the cart with the Ark and the, all these golden peace offerings and the Philistine leaders are hiding and watching from behind at a distance. In verse 13, now the people of Beth Shemesh, this is a, a Jewish community, they were harvesting their wheat in the valley. And when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. And the people chopped up the wood of the cart, and they sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. 
the Levites took down the ark of the Lord together with the chest containing the gold objects, and they placed them on the large rock. And on that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all of this and then returned that same day to Ekron. Now, the ark is returned, and the people are excited. It's like, how on earth does this happen? You know, we had to fight battles as to who's going to have this thing, and now cows just come marching back into the country with this ark of the covenant in tow, and so they call for the priests, and they're celebrating this. But now comes the moment where we get a little bit of uh, Steven Spielberg feel to the story. Actually, Spielberg borrowing from Samuel. Verse 19. But God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow that the Lord had dealt them. And the men of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? You see what's happened? The Lord and His presence, His ark, have returned. And the people are just so curious. And it says specifically, it's the men of the community. You know, as men, our curiosity will get us in trouble sometimes. And it got these guys in the ultimate form of trouble. They said, why don't we just peek inside? We want to make sure all the contents are still there, right? I mean, surely God would want us to do that. And they pop the top on the ark of the covenant. We don't know how much it looked like what we just saw on the screen, but it was it was dreadful because... 70 people, 70 men died in that moment because they defied the command of the Lord in His Word as to how people were to approach God's presence and the ark. You weren't supposed to touch this thing. It had loops on either side and poles that went through that so that you would never touch the ark. You would just pick up the poles to carry it. And they felt like they could just walk up and say, well, let's check out what's inside. Hadn't you wanted to see the staff of Moses and the stone tablets? We'll pop the top and see. And in that moment, 70 died because the wrath of God was expressed in that moment. And they're saying, what are we going to do with this thing? We can't live without it. And we can't live with it in the camp. What do you do with such a thing? It's a reminder of the challenge of living in a relationship with the one true holy God. Verse 1 of chapter 7. So the men of of, uh, Kiriath-Jerim came and they took the ark of the Lord and they took it in Abinadab's house on the hill. And they consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim. Such an intriguing line. The people were just heartsick, grieving that the ark has been lost and all that that represented. God works a miracle. I mean, wouldn't you agree? An absolute miracle that the ark reappears, brought in without anyone around except two cows pulling it back. It's back. We've got it back. And all of a sudden, the realization of what it means to have the presence of God in the camp and the people are going, we don't know how to deal with this. Let's just stick it at somebody's house. We'll send a holy man over to take care of it and let's just forget about it. 20 years it just sat at this guy's house. The Ark of the Covenant. The presence of God with his people. And the people are just going, we know we need God in our camp. Let's just see if we can stick him in Abinadab's house and leave him there. 20 years they just muddle through. But after 20 years of getting by on their own terms, the people realize, 
we have made an incredibly foolish mistake. The people of Israel mourned and they sought after the Lord after these 20 years. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and their asterisks, which is all their pagan gods and idols, and they served the Lord only. And then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. And when they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and they poured it out before the Lord. And on that day they fasted and they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel was leader of Israel at Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. Great little reminder in that. First time in 20 years that Israel has truly turned with all of their hearts back to the Lord. And almost as soon as that happens, the enemy gathers to attack them. How many times has that happened in your life? You finally return to the Lord. You finally get serious about getting right with God and serving the Lord. And what does the enemy do? Does he cheer? No. That's when he decides, I've got to come against you. I've got to make you sorry that you did that. And you go through a season of heavy attack. It's so consistent. And that's what happens to Israel here. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. And they said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. And then Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And he cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. And while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines, and he threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. And the men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah, and they pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth And then Samuel took a stone... And he set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and he named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far has the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israelite territory again. In this passage, we see the turn. For 350 years, Israel has been on a downward slope, going to places that are morally more and more corrupt, further and further from God. And as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, in the middle of all of this corruption and darkness, God has been elevating. He has been raising up a new spiritual champion who's going to lead Israel in a new direction. And today is the beginning of that turn, which in the span of just a generation or two, is going to see Israel soar to heights that they have never known before or since it's under Samuel's leadership that the first big steps are taken and today we read about the start of that as he calls Israel to truly repent and turn back to the Lord now there's a lot of stuff in this passage we don't have time to unpack it all but there are four really important spiritual truths that I want to make sure that we have clearly in mind as we leave here today and the first one the one that I'll really camp on the most is this That we often desire, like the Israelites, we desire the favor of God without wanting to have to deal with His holiness. Would you agree with that? That we want the favor of God. We want the blessing of God. We want to do well financially. We want to stay healthy. We want our families to stay healthy. We want to enjoy God's protection. But we don't want to have to fool with dealing with God's holiness. It would be so much more convenient that way, wouldn't it? 
let me just name it and claim it, all the good stuff that I want in my life, but don't make me have to live a holy life. Don't make me have to think about what God's holiness demands of me. The Israelites wanted to live that way. They wanted to do whatever was right in their own eyes, but when they went into battle and suddenly they were in a desperate situation, oh yeah, bring out the God box, because in this moment we can't depend on ourselves. We need God for this little span of time, so get the God box over here. And I would contend that we pull a very similar trick. The only difference for us is we don't carry around a little shiny, gold-covered, angel-topped God box. Our God box is shaped like this. Our box is a little bigger. We call it a church building. The Western church has created its own God box. And we're, we're so many times willing to live life on our own terms, by our own rules. But every time we get in a pinch, every time there's a health crisis or a financial crisis or a career crisis or a relationship crisis, we run back to the God box. Oh, we're going to need God in this moment. Let's get God out of his box. Let's make sure we invoke his blessing on our lives. And it doesn't work that way. We don't get to live by our own terms and then as if we're rubbing a a lamp containing a genie, let God loose so that he can bless us in our moment of need. And this passage is a rather shocking and disturbing reminder of that. We would love to just have the blessing of God and not have to deal with his holiness, but we don't get to deal with God in those terms. Isaiah gives us a profound reminder of how true this is. One of the best known passages in Isaiah is in chapter 6 where we read that it was in the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. That one statement alone is pretty significant. King Uzziah was a godly, godly man and it was a horrible loss for Israel when he died. It was a personal loss for Isaiah. A black, dark time in his life is a great reminder that so many times that is when God shows up in such significant and profound ways in our lives. Some of us here, some of you watching and listening online, you're going through a really dark period, maybe a period of loss. And I want to just remind you that it's not unusual at all that in the middle of that darkness is when God will show up so clearly and just show himself to be faithful. It's when he showed up in Isaiah's life. And Isaiah tries to describe what he encountered. He says... That the Lord was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe, it filled the temple. Can you picture this? This is a great God. And attending him were mighty seraphim, these warring angels who protect the presence and the glory of God. And they were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. This is not some weak picture of some little mamby-pamby God. This is God who scripture says is a warrior. He is the commander of heaven's armies. And he is surrounded by powerful seraphim who just call out day and night, holy, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is the ruler of heaven and earth. He is the king and ruler of heaven's armies. Glory be to that God. You know, of all the things that they could say about him, by the way, they could, you know, God is just, God is loving, God is patient. He is all those things. But they don't stand and bow and shout, just, 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 patient, patient, patient. What they shout is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Fully set apart, a cut above, completely morally pure. He is the Holy Lord. 
the temple begins to be filled with the glory of this God and their voices. This is not the voice of God. This is just the voice of those who protect the glory of God. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations. Can you picture how wild it's going to get in here this morning? If the Lord or His angels speak and this whole building begins to shake and the ground beneath you begins to shake... The temple foundations are shaking. The entire building was filled with smoke. And then I, Isaiah speaking, said, it's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. The Jewish people in the Old Testament believed that for a human, just to see the glory of God would mean sudden, certain death. And Isaiah is coming to the realization, oh my This is God Himself showing up in the place of worship. The building can't contain it. The earth is trembling at His presence. The the shouts, the power, the feeling. And Isaiah just says, that's it. I am done. I am toast. History, it is over. I know. If you've ever just begun to experience those moments where God just comes... I don't just mean in that, yeah, where two or three are gathered, God is with us. No, I mean the manifest presence of God showing up in a place. I'm telling you, when that happens, you won't have to try and figure out whether it's going on because you're most likely going to have your noggin on the concrete in the presence of God just repenting because in those moments, the the holiness of God is so overwhelming that our sin is just overpowering. And all we just feel that we can do in that moment is to repent and to just beg God's forgiveness so that that we can draw near. And it's what Isaiah did. Do you just begin to realize as we catch a glimpse of that, how far removed from that experience we have become? When we can just sort of come and go on a Sunday morning into the place of worship and just sort of mail it in. I wonder how long this is going to last. I wonder if they're going to do some good songs. Just kind of half-heartedly sing along. Have we lost sight of what this is about and who this is about? The one true living God invites us, draws us into His presence and says, I want to come. I want to be near you. I want you to be near me. I want to reveal myself to you. I want you to catch a glimpse of who and what I really am. I don't want you to just come to church. I don't want you to just sing some songs. I want you to know me. It's so hard to get our minds around the greatness of God. We, we've become so familiar with God. And don't, don't get me wrong. While God is transcendent, He is also imminent. While God is above us, He is also with us. Praise God for that. Praise God for His nearness to us. But we dare not take advantage of His imminence in such a way that He just becomes the big guy upstairs. Our buddy Jesus. He is not just our buddy Jesus. He is holy God. And we must respond accordingly. It doesn't mean that we can't be near Him. It means we can't be flippant about how we approach Him. I confess, I'm a science nerd. I I am and I'll never recover from it. But part of the reason that I am is because God reveals Himself in the world. 
John read as our call to worship this morning about how the heavens declare the glory of God. They do. It says day and night they pour forth speech. There is no place where their voice cannot be heard because the heavens are declaring the greatness of God. I was just yesterday I had some spare time and I was just reading some some scientific articles written by astronomers and some of the big eggheads of our time. And I I just continue to be fascinated at how the glory of God is revealed in both the little things and the big things. Think about when how our advances in science is, in science allow us to look at the big and the small more and more clearly. You know, years ago, as people began to be able to examine the human body, and they said, oh, we now can see individual cells. We understand the basic building block, that we are made up of cells. And then we get better at it, and we go, oh, wow, there's something way beyond cells. There are molecules, millions of molecules that make up cells. We have found the, the beginning point of all this, and then we get to, able to look a little deeper, and it's like, wow, there's something beyond that. There are these things called atoms that countless atoms make up every molecule. We found the basic building block, and then we go beyond that and go, wait a minute, there's complex beyond that within each atom there are these protons and neutrons that are just all married up to, to each other inside these atoms and they're spinning or spinning around them are these clouds of electrons we have found the basic building blocks and then we get to look a little further and we're like guess what that ain't the end we get inside these things and there's there's quarks and there's leptons and there are all these subatomic particles of subatomic particles we keep looking in and the further we go the greater complexity we see and there's order in all of those things and here's what's crazy nobody can explain why they behave the way that they do why do neutrons and protons feel attracted to one another nothing in science or history has ever explained why they're held together or why electrons move as they do almost at the speed of light around those things and why these subatomic particles work as they do and then we look in the other direction we look at the vastness of the universe around us and we are through the hubble telescope and all these other radio telescopes we see we now know they're able to, to begin to count and quantify this thing and realize there are far more stars than there are grains of sand on the planet Earth. The next time you're at the beach, just pick up a pinch of sand and try and count the grains of sand into your hand. You'll lose your mind on a pinch. Pick up a handful of sand and let it just slip through your fingers and imagine how many thousands, if not millions, of grains of sand have passed through your hand. And then look at the vastness of one beach. And then consider all of Earth's beaches and realize every grain of sand on Earth cannot account for the stars in our universe. I was reading an article yesterday that, again, this is theoretical and I'm not going to run real far with this, but it was just making the point that scientists are now able to look at the outer edges of what is the known universe and they have discovered a gigantic cold spot in one outer edge of our universe that is a thousand times the size of the Milky Way and a hundred times colder than any spot that we found anywhere in the universe. And they have theorized... That what we have observed so far is but one universe of which there are many. Now, no, we're not talking science fiction where in some parallel universe there's a green-haired villain version of you that's ruling a planet. That's not what we're saying. They're simply saying we're observing what we call the universe, but we think that this cold spot on the edge of the universe that is so vast is the result of another universe that has collided with ours. Their point being, we think that there may be countless other universes as vast as the one that we're trying to observe now. 
Another related article I was reading yesterday, I thought this was kind of funny. I'll throw it in as an aside. They said, and we keep observing now these stars in different galaxies that are moving in the wrong direction. Stars that are moving like this. And then there are stars mixed in. They're moving in the wrong direction. And nothing in the physical universe can explain why they're moving in the wrong direction. And so some of the brightest minds on earth have come up with a theory. They said, we believe that there may be a form of consciousness and intelligence that is not carbon-based. It's not like life as we know it. The only thing we can figure is, these things must have some kind of intelligence. And these stars have decided to change their movement in a different direction. I'm like, you're getting warm, Doc. You're getting warm. It will require intelligence and vast power to make these things happen. You just missed it by one, one degree here. It does require intelligence and power. It's an intelligence and power not that a star possesses, but an intelligence and power that created it all, that holds it all in place. Now, here's the one last thing that I'm leading up to. All of the stuff that I've just described, all the vastness of every galaxy in the universe, of every star, of every planet, all the way down to the subatomic particles of every atom, the driving force holding everything together in all that I've ever described is one thing, we all know the word, the one thing that holds it all together. It starts with a G. What is it? Well, yeah, you're a step ahead of me. It's, it, we're, we're talking science right now, okay? It's, it's a bigger word. Gravity. Y'all, y'all ran a step ahead of me. Gravity is what science says. I know, you spiritual giants. You just, you're, you're, you're truly a step ahead of me. That's where I'm going. But, but here's the funny thing in that. It's like the fundamental thing of science. Gravity holds everything together. Everything that has mass is attracted to everything else that has mass, right? That's why your body stays together. It doesn't fly apart. It's why everything in the universe operates as it does. But here's an interesting thing nobody told you in science class. There's no scientist on the earth who has any idea how gravity works. And here's the fundamental problem. They can't figure out any medium through which it can work. You know what I mean when I say a medium through which it it travels? When the sun warms the earth, it sends photons. We, We know what those are. We understand through the vacuum of space, something is being sent from the sun to the earth. We get that. And yet we say, more importantly, but the sun has this sort of sucking power to hold the earth in its orbit. It's called gravity. Through what medium does that happen? There is no wave. There's nothing being passed in between. It's going through a vacuum. I mean, we understand when there's an earthquake and it causes a tidal wave a thousand miles away, we know how that energy gets from point A to point B. It's through the medium of the ocean. It's through the medium of water. Space is a vacuum. The inside of every atom is a vacuum. Nobody can explain how in a vacuum, what medium allows gravity to... One object to pull on another. How can that be? Nobody has ever come up with a theory to explain how that happens. The scripture explains it. God holds all things together by his powerful word. God is the one who speaks everything in existence into order. Every cell, every atom, every star, every galaxy. By the powerful spoken word of Jesus All things exist and have their being. They are held in place. If God stops being God, everything comes unglued literally. That God 
that great God, the God over all the universe, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, that God enters into time and space and says, come, come draw near to me. We can't be flippant about how we approach that God. Okay, I'm off my science cube. And here's what that God says. Over and over and over in Scripture, the recurring line, 1 Peter 1.16, You be holy, because I am holy. We can't deal with God without dealing with His holiness. We can't have the blessing of God without dealing with the holiness of God. That brings us to the second truth, which is that the nearness of God can bring great blessing or tremendous suffering. The Israelites wanted the blessing of God, so they ran for God in a box. The Philistines take it in battle, and it's like, ooh, we're going to be better off than we've ever been before, because now we've even got the God of the, the Jews among us. And what came with it? Suffering, death, rats, tumors. And everywhere the presence of God went, suffering went with it. There's a lot of examples of that in Scripture. A bunch of them happened during the Exodus. You remember God finally just tells Moses, I'm going to have to depart. I'm going to let you go to the promised land. I'm just not going to go with you because I'm afraid I'm going to kill you all. You remember that conversation? Over and over, Moses would go, please, God, no, we're not going to keep going if you don't go with us. And God's going, I'm just warning you, if I go, you may all die. It's just such a mess down here. Moses is going, please, God, no, it wouldn't be worth going if you're not with us. The presence of God that's bringing daily provision, that's giving direction, that's making protection for his people is the very thing that was endangering their lives. Because depending on how you respond, the presence of God either brings great blessing or great suffering. Ananias and Sapphira learned that in Acts chapter 5. 2 Samuel 6 is a great reminder of that. We'll get to that on another day. But I'll just remind you that was the day that David had decided to take the Ark of the Covenant just to few decades beyond where we're reading now. We're going to take this into Jerusalem. We've created a temple. We're going to, or we're going to create a temple. We're going to bring the tabernacle in. And we're going to have the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy City. And we're building a new cart to bring it in. And along the way, David violated a basic part of how God said to move the Ark. And along the way, as a result, oxen stumble. The Ark's going to fall. And Uzzah grabs hold of the Ark. I'm just going to steady the Ark. And God strikes him dead in that moment. You don't get to make up your own terms for how you deal with God. And so David's angry at God. He's upset. He's like, forget this. Leave the ark right here. What's your name? Well, guess what? The ark stays at your house. So the ark of the Lord stayed in Obed-Edom's house for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his family. And the people told David, the Lord has blessed the family of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because the ark of God is there. And at that point, David goes, well, I guess I'm going to have to go back and figure out how to deal with God. We've got to get this thing to Jerusalem. It's the condition of our hearts. Whether we're surrendered to God or living on our own terms that determines whether the presence of God brings blessing or suffering. The third truth is this. God does not allow us to come to him on our own terms. It's a great reminder at the end of chapter 6, isn't it? When the men of Beth Shemesh say... How about we look inside the ark? Just see what's in there. God's given real specific instructions. He is trying to teach his people at a fundamental level about how we interact with him and how we approach him. And they're just making it up as they go. And God drives home the point, you don't get to make it up 
You don't get to approach me based on your own terms and just your own judgment. As I read that story, I'm reminded of that really peculiar account, and yet it's so profound, of what happened in Joshua chapter 5. If you'll remember, the opening of the book of Joshua is following the 40 years of Israel being wandering in the wilderness under Moses' leadership, and Moses has just died, and now his understudy Joshua is taken over. Wouldn't you love to be in his shoes? You've got to replace Moses. That's a hard act to follow. And so now Joshua, as they've just crossed the Jordan River, they're going into the Promised Land, and they face their first major battle. They're coming up against the incredibly vast, intimidating city of Jericho. Wall around it so huge, chariots ride around on top of the wall. There is no way that this just band of Bedouins are going to be able to take this city. It's a God-sized task, and, and Joshua knows that they're called to do this, and they're going to have to take city after city, and so he's fretting about this, and on the day before the engagement with Jericho, the battle is going to begin. Joshua has this one-on-one encounter. We're not sure whether it is with Jesus or with Michael. The scripture isn't clear. He just identifies himself as the commander of the Lord's armies, the armies of heaven. Either, either Jesus or the archangel Michael would qualify as that. So it really doesn't matter which one it was. We just know it's God's representative who is assigned to command the Lord's armies. And so Joshua comes upon him, and whether it's Jesus or Michael, either one is a powerful figure, and he is holding a raised sword when Joshua encounters him. Joshua is taken aback in that moment. And he asks the most pertinent question of that moment. Are you for us or for them? (laughs) Because it has immediately occurred to him, we've been thinking about, are we going to be able to win this battle? Do we have what it takes? And in that one moment, he realizes there's only one thing that matters, because whoever side he is on is who's going to win this battle. And so he asked Jesus or Michael, he asked the Lord's representative, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the reply is so important. He says in response, neither. But as the commander of the Lord's armies, I have come. The message is this. I didn't come to take sides. I came to take over. I didn't come to say, I'm for you. I'm against them. I came to tell you, I am the side for you to take. I don't side with you. If you're wise, you side with me. To which Joshua said, well, do you have a message for me? And here was his message. I have a message for you. Take off your shoes. Because you are standing on holy ground. I read that countless times going, well, that ain't much of a message. Is that it? If I'm Joshua, I'm going, hadn't you got more for us than that? Oh, I realize now that's all that was needed. Because here's what the message meant. I didn't come to tell you, oh, I'm for the Jews. I hate the residents of Jericho. Yeah, I'm on your side. No, he came to say, I showed up today to remind you what this is all about. This is not about you. This is about God and his kingdom and his agenda. And guess what, Joshua? God didn't show up so he could support your agenda. God has an agenda. It is to save the world. And oh, by the way, he's using the Jewish people to usher in this plan. It's his plan. And the fact that you're standing here today alongside me is not because I decided to show 
show up and bless what you're doing. You have the privilege of stepping into a holy time where God has said, guess what? Jericho has to fall. The wall is coming down. Not because the Jews rose up, but because God said, I have a plan. I have an agenda. I'm about to usher in a kingdom. And I'm going to make this happen. Guess what, Joshua? If you want to get on board, I'll let you do that. But you need to understand, this is a holy agenda. You come near me, you're on holy ground. Take your shoes off, son. You don't just get to do this on any terms that you want to. Understand, Joshua, it ain't about you. Freedom Church, it's not about us. It's the biggest trap in the world to think that we need to figure out what we're doing next and then ask God to join us in there. Wrong. We need to get to a place where we're seeking God above everything else, regardless of what we succeed or fail at. The one thing we cannot fail at. We must be a people who seek hard after God and find Him. And live in that position of, God, we'll keep our shoes off because... We're in your presence. We're on holy ground. And wherever you go next, we're ready to march there. And we're not going to be afraid because we realize you are the one who goes before us in battle. You are the Lord, our banner. Jehovah Sidkenu. The God who goes before us in battle. You don't get to come to him on your own terms. Not even if your name's Joshua and you're trained under Moses. And then the fourth and final thought is this. Faith and personal consecration provide the only positive paths to God's presence. Now the Philistines found a creative other path into God's presence, but it wasn't a positive one. The only ways to have a positive encounter with God are through faith and personal consecration. When after 20 years the people realized they'd made a terrible mistake... They repented. They turned back to the Lord. And Samuel called them to account. He said, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, you've got to make some changes. You've got to get some things out of your lives. And you've got to commit yourselves to the Lord and serve Him only. And He will deliver you when you do that. Now I want to point out the contrast of two critical things here. When we first come to God, hear me on this. If you've tuned me out, please dial back in. When we first come to God, there's only one way to come to Him. And that's exactly as you are. Jacked up, messed up, bound by sin. So many people don't come to God because they get deceived into thinking that they've got to clean up their act and be good enough to get to God. You'll never get there. If that's what you're thinking, give up on trying. The only way to get saved is to come as you are. Jesus died For us, because we couldn't get cleaned up enough to come to him. We're all on the same page with that. Faith in Jesus and the finished work that he did on the cross where he died for our sins is the only way to come to God. And when we do that, an incredible thing happens. Hebrews 10 says, We have then, my friends, complete freedom to go into the most holy place. That's a reference to the Holy of Holies we talked about last week. The place in the temple where the Ark of the Covenant resided, where only the chief priest, the the high priest, one day a year, one person could go in there. And Jesus, through his death, makes access for all of us to go into the presence of God, to the Holy of Holies, by means of the death of Jesus. He opened for us a new way, a living way, through the curtain, that is, through his own body. Wonderful news, isn't it? 
Through faith in Jesus, the curtain is torn apart. Our sin is atoned for, and we have access to God. That's great. But here's the other half you have to understand. It stands in such sharp, sharp contrast to how we are saved just as we are. You don't have to clean up anything to get saved. However, as a follower of Christ, we cannot remain as we were. In fact, you're not a follower of Christ if you remain as you are. No change equals no Jesus. You agree with that? If there isn't some kind of transformation taking, in, taking place in your life, there isn't any Jesus living in your life. Because the work of the Holy Spirit is to make us more and more like Jesus. And so many of these lessons that we get from the Old Testament where God is making it clear to his people, you're going to have to change the way that you live. You can't just have all of these other things in your life that are displeasing to God, but go, but we want to have room for the Ark of the Covenant too. We want to have a spot for that. That is no different than us just having a God slot in our lives. I think about, do you remember uh, the old game Trivial Pursuit? Everybody remember what Trivial Pursuit was like? Do you remember the little, circ- the little disc that are like, they had slices spaces in them for like little slices of cheese the little triangles that you'd fill in as you progressed in the game you remember what that looked like as you made progress you'd fill in the little cheeses to me that's sort of a picture of how many of us want to live our lives we've got a little slot that is for our relationships for our mate and for our children and for our career and for our finances and our retirement and our hobbies and we've got a little slot for god it's so special i love to visit my god slot I just love keeping Jesus. I, sometimes I pull my little Jesus cheese out and I just tell him how much I love him and I put him back. We live like that so many times. And the message of this story is Jesus is not a cheese that fits in a slot. He is the holy God who is all-consuming. And he will not be one God among many. He knocks down the other gods. He will not just be a little slice of your life. He demands that when we invite him to come in and save us and change us, that we progressively yield everything to him. That's a hard message to correlate to the message that I've heard preached so much in my life. If you'll just pray this little sinner's prayer and get dunked in our holy water, you've got your fire insurance and you're going to heaven. That is not the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus is one of total surrender. To enter the kingdom of God, Jesus must become your Lord and King. That's the master. That's the one who gets to call the shots. The words of James are so fitting for where we are right now. He says this, so let God work his will in you. That's that's the great challenge, isn't it? Because every one of us has got a will. And we'd love for God just to bless our will. And James says, no, you've got to do a 180. You've got to let God work his will in you. And when you do that, yell a loud no to the devil and watch him scamper. You're going to need to do that because when you've been living on your own terms, the devil is always a part of that. His demons are always a part of that. And you're going to have to say, in Jesus' name, I bind the enemy. Go where Jesus commands. Don't come back. He says, watch him scamper. Say a quiet yes to God and he'll be there in no time. And now is when he gets real personal. Quit dabbling in sin. Purify your inner life. Quit playing the field. Hit bottom and cry your eyes out. The fun and games are over. Get serious. Really serious. Get down on your knees before the master. It's the only way you'll get on your feet. That is a powerful word. 
There are a lot of us have been trying to figure out for years, how am I going to get back on my feet? Well, you've got to get on your knees to get back on your feet. You've got to get on your knees and repent and say, God, I'm not going to continue to make excuses or make room for the secret little pet sins that I enjoy every part of my life. doesn't mean I'm going to live perfection, but every part of my life is surrendered to you. God, you bring your conviction, you bring your power to change me because I realize I can't change it, I can't fix it, I can't get rid of the junk, I can't build in the right stuff, but I am yielding to your power. That's what Samuel was challenging the people to. He said, you want the blessing of God, you want the presence of God with you, it's your heart that's going to decide that. Are you going to make room for a little Jesus cheese in your life or are you going to just give your whole life to Jesus? And so I want to conclude with one simple thought. It's just this. How close to Jesus do you want to be? Not a Sunday school answer. How close to Jesus do you want to be? And I want you to answer this two different ways. I want you to read through what I've written. I want you to think two different things. First of all, based on your life over the past few months and years, if that's all you had to judge by, by your your own way of living and thinking, how close to Jesus would you say that you want to be? First of all, would you say, I don't want to think about or deal with that right now? For some people, that would be the honest answer. Don't want to think about being close to Jesus. I just want to live my life. Others might say, I want to go to heaven when I die, but that's the extent of my spiritual interest. I don't want to go to hell. Some might say, I want a personal relationship with Jesus, but I don't want to be bothered with organized religion, church, or having to give my money or time. Some might go a step further and say, I'm willing to go to church when it's convenient and live a respectable life. A lot of us that grew up in certain churches in the South might say, I'm very zealous about following the rules of Christianity, like going to church, praying, tithing, witnessing, reading my Bible, sexual purity. I'm willing to go that far with it. But would you say this? I want an intimate relationship with Jesus. I want to obey Him, and I want to love what He loves and hate what He hates. Now, I want you to answer that two different ways based on where your life has been. I know nobody's going to whip out a pen and check this because you're afraid somebody would look. But if you had to answer it based on the past, what does your life say about how close you want to be to Jesus? And I want you to ask it, answer it a second way. Based on where your head and heart are right now going forward, how do you want to answer that question? I know in my heart, I want to check the final box. I want to live in an intimate relationship with Jesus. I want to love Him. I want to love what He loves and hate what He hates. And I want my life to reflect that. If that's what you desire, would you tell Him that? Maybe that's not your answer. Maybe you you realize, there's something wrong with my wanter. I'm not wanting the right thing. I need Him to deal with what I even desire right now. Would you just be honest with Him about that? As we're turned to Him together in prayer, would you bow with me? God, we're just going to ask you right now, by the power of your Spirit, to bring the light of truth and the convicting power of your Holy Spirit to bear in our hearts. Please help us to see where we really live. Please give us the kind of clarity that Isaiah had when he drew into your presence and suddenly... Even just the words that came out of his mouth, just even the thought that filthy stuff came out of his mouth and, and how defiling that was and just the people that he was around and things that he was engaged in. He felt convicted about that. God, let your spirit convict us, not in legalistic ways that we impose on each other, but as you see life, show us where we compromise and where we create barriers between us and you.
And would you forgive us? Would you create in us a deeper hunger and a thirst to know you and to walk with you? Would you just take a moment to do business with God? Ask Him to help you draw nearer in this time. God, we welcome the work of your Spirit in us and we pray that you would make of us men and women of faith who seek hard after you. Have your way here, we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Would you stand together with me? We're going to sing together.